Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode was part of my countdown to the end of Breaking Bad. I was looking at darker television shows in that same vein. So this one is myself and Mark Radlich talking about The Shield. This was the FX series starring uh, Michael Chiklis in the role of Vic Mackey. Uh, Mark and I go on for a bit, as we are wont to do, but The Shield is a very interesting show, and some of the discussion around it turns out to be pretty darn interesting as well. The original air date for this episode is August 22nd of 2013. I hope you all enjoy the re-listen, as you have been enjoying all of our great content. Thank you very much for listening. Please enjoy the show. Breaking episode and the finale of Breaking Bad. This is Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. I am your host, Robert Winfrey, and we're still in the midst of the countdown. Two more episodes left of Breaking Bad before it's done. That means this show and one other before I get to do the show on Breaking Bad following the epic Google Hangout that has been scheduled for a bunch of guys from 411 Mania immediately following the end of Breaking Bad, because really there's nothing on immediately after that's all that interesting, and anyone who thinks Total Divas qualifies... Uh, go boil your head. I mean, come on. There's there's a lot better on than that, Drek, but the writing for that has been pretty good. As far as reality shows go, that's decent writing. But this week, uh, we're looking at another awesome series as far as television goes, one of the better ones of all time for my money. Not the best, but it's certainly up there. We're talking about The Shield. No, not the new lapdogs for the McMahon-Helmsley era 2.0 for all the wrestling fans out there. No, no, no. We're leaving them in the dust. We're talking about true greatness, Vic Mackey, the strike team, Michael Chiklis, the farm, the barn, the whole nine yards, the greatness that was the TV show brought to us by Kurt Sutter, who is currently giving us greatness in the, forms of, in the form of Sons of Anarchy, also on the FX network. Awesome stuff all the way around from this show. 
And it's another one that focuses on a somewhat evil protagonist because Vic Mackey has some pretty glaring character flaws, I suppose you could call them, if we're being kind. But I'm also not here alone. Again, I think the next show I do, I will probably be solo or doing a call-in style show to set up just anyone that I may have missed, depending on how a couple of things shake out. But this week, guest, guests are good. He was here to talk about two other shows that we've done. He's long been a friend of this show. In fact, I'm syndicated on his broadcasting network. Mark Radlich is back with us, the great man from Florida, and I'm sure there's only one. So, Mark, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this show. I remember trying to get my dad to watch it. He's a big fan of, like, Law and & Order and all of the 97 different Law & Order shows. And I thought, you know, and when I was into The Shield... Uh, I tried to get him to watch it because I thought, well, I like it. I don't see why you won't. You seem to like pretty smartly written television. And he goes, that's the one about the crooked cop, right? And I said, well, more or less. He was like, yeah, here's here's the problem. I don't want to watch a show in which we're told we're supposed to root for the bad guy. He's a crooked cop. He murders uh, somebody in, the, you know, in like the first episode. From, and he was right. He, well, I'm assuming we're going to talk about that. But uh, oh, yeah. What what had made the show famous from the onset was in the very first episode, uh, the star, Michael Chiklis, who plays Vic Mackey, uh, commits a heinous murder against one of his fellow cops. And that was sort of the selling point to the show. And my, father, and my father says that to me, and he goes, I'm not watching a show where we're supposed to root for that person. And that in and of itself, I think, is one of the most fascinating things about The Shield is that and we were talking about this before the show started tonight, is you're put in these really odd positions where you root for heinous people doing terrible things to those who, on, who in real life would be, uh, would be the real heroes. But instead, you're, you're rooting for the psychopath to succeed. And it's, it's, an odd, uh, it's an odd dilemma for, uh, for someone to be in when they're watching a television show. So aside from that, I'm doing fine. <laughs> well, that's good. And yes... I especially want to talk about the first episode because I, for my personal introduction to The Shield, I found some reruns in the, during the, I think it was the third or fourth season, they were rerunning some from the previous season on one of my local stations, I think it was the, the CW at the time, before it became the CW, whatever name it had prior to that, and I liked it, my problem was it was constantly edited for content and in some cases for time because what you can air on FX is different than what you can air on free broadcast television that anybody can pick up with a set of rabbit ears. So I but so I started I went back. I actually this is how long ago my love affair with the Shield started, ladies and gentlemen. I rented the first 3 or 4 seasons from Hollywood Video. Yes, I was keeping I was helping keep that particular institution afloat for a while because I couldn't find them online at the time for a variety of reasons and I wanted to see what was going on see what had led up to the point, to see where things were going, et cetera, et cetera. And the first episode is absolutely key to the introduction of Vic Mackey and, by extension, uh, Shane Vandrell, because everything kind of after that, Vic Mackey and a, a huge credit to the cast here because they managed to create these situations where these horrible things and these horrible people, by and large, can be almost justified and looked at in a different light. Because not just of the strength and the, of the actors and the charisma that they bring to their roles, although that's a huge part of it, but some of what Vic Mackey does, you look at it and you kind of go, okay, that's not the worst thing in the world. There are some morally justifiable 
actions that he takes. I'm not calling them correct. I'm saying there is a line of thought that can lead to them being justifiable. I cut a deal. Uh, I cut a major drug supplier some slack on the street so that we don't get drugs being dealt in elementary school. I can okay, see the me, logic um, there. I don't. Let me let me jump in here with, with this. Another thing that my father had said at the time, which goes to your point, was that, um, and I've heard other cops say this. This show was um, fantasy porno for uh, law enforcement. Yeah, because I, I imagine people, that. Because <laughs> I part of the show's success was, and I'm going to relate this. People who who know everyone from four one one has some attachment i think to professional wrestling because that's what drew us to the site in the first place so you'll find that even if we're talking music movies um video games etc they'll it'll, all roads will lead back to pro wrestling and in this case it, it's um the shield is very similar to the austin era in professional wrestling under the wwe where austin played a character that people sort of lived through you know Vin, vince mcmahon very famously said who doesn't want to punch out their boss well, this guy did it every Monday night for like three or four years or whatever, however long that was, where he was at the, the top. Um, however long the Austin McMahon actual feud was, um, he uh, he every week would go out there and live the American dream, as Homer Simpson said. You know, you, he got to beat up his beat up and humiliate his boss on a weekly basis. Well, Vic Mackey, um, Michael Tickles says Vic Mackey got to be uh, the cop with no rules. He got to be the guy who you know could beat confessions out of people, and I mean not not the robbing the Armenian money train part, or you know killing your or killing your fellow police officers. I'm really pretty sure most of them looked poorly upon that sort of behavior. But the kind of stuff he did to criminals, where you know he murdered a few in cold blood, you know he would he, kill uh, some in beat... cold blood. He sicked a dog on a accused rapist, yeah, and he... it kind of mauled him a little. He dragged one under under some barbed wire that he was halfway through, and he yanked him back through it. I mean, he did yeah. these things did, that I mean, he did something that, to somebody with an oven, which resulted in Ronnie being burned. But the the point yeah, that I was getting, uh, Armadillo. Yeah, the point that I was uh, getting to was that the I, I, the popularity of the show mostly rested upon the idea that. You know, normal, real in real life, you can't do any of the shit that he did. But it was fun to watch somebody do it because of the inherent frustration of the job, and what some would say even being um, hamstrung by uh, the, the rules of an investigation. Well, the ACLU, human rights, the rules of an investigation, the law, constitution, yeah, all that fun stuff that stops us from deteriorating into anarchy. Yeah, and my and I remember my, my 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 last point on this, and I'll hand the hand it back to you. My father used to always say, he's like, I understand all of that. That's not a reason to root for somebody. You should not applaud people for deciding that the ends justify the means, which was literally the theme of that show. Oh yeah, absolutely. And my point there was, it was like we just said, you know, there's a lot of stuff that he does that. You know, oh, there's a pedophile, and we let Vic Mackey alone with him in an interview room with a phone book and some other implements of we're going to get you're going to talk to me one way or the other, and we can all kind of go, you know, he had that, you know, yay. But at the end of the first episode, when he in cold blood shoots another police officer through the face, that's it, it's so important that you have something that big, that you know, heinous to set up the character because everything else that he does kind of revolves around. That act. I mean, yes, he was dirty before that, but well, there, are, is he... there are two things that sets up the first. And but then they, they run the Armenian money train, which and that's the, the remaining five. 
<laughs> yeah. Every I was gonna say every shooting the cop through the face really introduced you to the show, and it was a and it was sort of the focal point of the first two seasons. Robbing the Armenian money train sets off a string of events that that ultimately ends in everyone's doom. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. It's not good at all. And but to have that introduction of you know okay you, you get the feeling right away you know he's not necessarily a straight laced by the boat cop. I mean, and for a gritty show on FX, that's pretty much par for the course. But for him to just cold blood pull out a gun and murder another police officer. This is a man with very few, if any, redeeming qualities, and that becomes crystal clear in the next episode when only he and Shane are in on it, and they keep the other two in the dark, especially poor Lem, who Kurt Sutter seems to enjoy blowing up. I mean, he gets so upset he punches out a car car window, which to anyone out there who's ever tried that, it's not easy that (laughs) – I mean, you will break your hand generally before you break the glass, so I don't recommend trying that. But they are keeping secrets, in some cases even from each other, and Vic is doing all of this to kind of further his own agenda. He is able to somewhat rationalize it with, I'm, keep, I'm keeping the team together, we're doing some good, you know, like you said, the ends justify the means. And then at the, in the, and then at the end, it all just kind of collapses on him when we yeah. get to the very end. But There's a sense of entitlement that runs through uh, his motivation. Um, and I think this struck a nerve with a lot of law enforcement people, you know, feeling like it's an endless sewer of shit out there uh, to which you are underpaid and understaffed to deal with it. And I think he, he comes to a crossroads in his career where he still wants to do some good, but he feels like he needs to take a bigger slice of the pie for himself because he hasn't been appropriately compensated for the work he has done. Um, again, that, that sense of entitlement is there. And in he is sort of the moral conscience, such as it is, of the entire group. You know, he leads, they follow, he sets the agenda. There's very rarely throughout the shield and, and until the very end um, any disagreement among them. Um, they're just kind of, you know, when, if, if Vic sets the tone. And so if Vic says, we are grossly underpaid for what we do and we need to take some for ourselves, Everyone just kind of goes with it because of his cult of personality. Um, but but that but that informs a lot of a lot of the characters' decision making. It's they owe me for this, or it's it it's the right thing to do to get to the the bigger um, the bigger goal. Whether it's you know it, there, there's the no harm in planting some evidence on this little drug dealer if we're going to get his big supplier. Right, and the whole thing is you know you brought up the. Um, well, he's not the leader of the strike team at the onset. The on, the, at the onset of this thing, it's uh, it's this detective whose um, name I do yeah, not Harry recall. Harry Crowley, I believe, was his name. Uh huh. Um, yes, Crowley. And essentially, he's the one leading the strike team. And and Vic, as it is, is already um, people are suspicious of him. Um, and essentially, he shoots him in the face in order to oh, yeah. in order to take over this. Essentially, this is like you know the. Uh, Alternative universe from Star Trek, from the uh, pirate Enterprise in Star Trek, where the only way to ascend into a position of leadership was to kill the guy above you, and that's what he does. He kills him just to satisfy his own uh, agenda, which is to lead the strike team. And there was, and I guess in his mind, there was no other way to do it. Well, it was certainly a quick and effective way to do. It. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say most people sort of reacted like, "Huh." 
<laughs> that sort of thing. You know, like we're with you if you're going to going to beat up on the bad guys, but you know, shooting a cop, well now we're intrigued, but we don't applaud this sort of thing. But again, you know, why did he shoot the cop? Because he felt like he was entitled to that position and that guy was in his way. This is the mark of a true sociopath. Yeah, Vic uh Michael Chiklis has described the character as kind of a combination of Hannibal Lecter with a Machiavellian sensitive sensibility and without quite the same drive to kill. He is always looking out for himself first, then his team, because they reflect on him. How can he better anything to his advantage? And it's just this slow... From the very beginning, you get the you can kind of get the feeling that things are just slowly and then faster as the series progresses, spiraling beyond his ability to control them. And I think one of the things with Mackie in particular that gets to me at least is he there are a couple of times within the series that he almost comes around. I mean, I'm, I'm, specifically I'm kind of referencing season four after uh, David Aceveda is elected to the city council, so he has a new captain in charge of the precinct, and he's able to and he's been working kind of tirelessly on this big sting project in a garage, getting wiretaps and information on various people, and he's put a lot of effort in. He's been off the streets. He's been, you know, the strike team's kind of broken up at this point. He's, you know, all right, I'll be a good boy for a while. And he makes a, a deal with the captain, Glenn Close, at the time, that, uh, okay, you know, I'll keep doing this, but, you know, get me back out on the street after this is over. You know, let me go Let me go where I can do some good, is his, his way of putting it. In reality, he just wants to get back out and manipulate things again, but... At the same time, he's, you know, you get the sense that, all right, if he, he may have kind of turned a corner, and if you let him back out, it wouldn't be the same as it was before, at least not right away. I mean, different trajectories and whatnot. But she winds up not being able to fulfill that particular promise, and you can just kind of see in his face as that scene unfolds that, wait a minute, I did it right. I played by the rules. I kept my nose clean. I didn't cause any waves, and I'm still getting burned. And the close of that episode is him walking down the street really kind of pissed off at the world and some uh, patrol car kind of flashes their lights at him and he just pulls his jacket back to reveal his badge and says just keep on walking just keep on driving pals and he's like oh boy he tried and it didn't work out so why should he do it the right way kind of the message that i think he took out of that yeah um and really i you know what can one say about uh, the I've um, part of the reason why I'm glad we're talking about the Shield tonight was because when people were talking about Breaking Bad and they're like, oh, you should watch Breaking Bad um, if you like The Wire. And as I said before, if you if you truly think that Breaking Bad and The Wire are similar shows, you either haven't watched or don't understand The Wire. But um, the show that I have compared Breaking Bad to, and the more we talk about the Shield, the more I, I realize that Walter White is the non-cop version of Vic Mackey. Uh, Breaking Bad and the Shield. Yes, they're both bald. Um, When you think about Walter White and and Vic Mackey, they are really the same character. They both have an ends justify the mean mentality. They're both sociopaths. Um, They they both have you know a Machiavellian sense of um, uh, of strategy and dealing with people, and they both absolutely lose control of a situation that they uh, work so hard to try to. Uh, keep under wraps. I mean, like I said, if if uh, Walt's if Walt's uh, story doesn't end similarly to the Vic Mackey, I'll eat my hat. You know, it really is. I mean, Breaking Bad, um, to a large degree, 
I'm not not necessarily obviously you know they are two different shows. One's about a chemistry teacher becomes a meth dealer, you know, and the other one's about a cop. So so obviously there are going to be some inherent differences. But when you look at um, you move away from the the specific and move to sort of the thematic qualities of the characters and of the stories themselves, they're almost identical. There are definitely similarities there, and it's not a bad so thing. And are practically the same character. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, I think the only difference is we meet Vic Mackey midway, you know, when he's already corrupt and he's already deep into his psychosis, where we get to see Waltz begin from the, you know, start from the beginning and move towards its conclusion. But yeah, they have, you know, they're just in terms of motivation and the very basis, basic instincts of the character, they are pretty much identical. But they, one of the things that struck me, and again, Michael Chiklis, I can't say enough good things about his performance here, and a lot of his performances in general. I mean. When I mentioned, I had a discussion with my mom when I was renting these movies, and she said, oh, Michael Chiklis, I remember him from, I believe it was called The Commish, or yep. The Commissioner, this sto- uh, older television show where he was kind of a goofy character, and he loved really early, like, Inkblot, you know, the Inkblot's music, and it was a very different character, so just kind of for fun, I looked up some of his work from that, and to compare that or... He had a brief stint on ABC with No Ordinary Family, or even he was one of the better parts of the Fantastic Four movies, his portrayal of Bre- of Ben Grimm. And just to compare all of those different characters to what he did as Vic Mackey, it's just it's absolutely startling. It's like watching Brian Cranston go from Malcolm in the Middle as Hal, the henpecked and kind of woe is me, always put upon dad, from Malcolm in the Middle to Heisenberg throwing a bag of meth at a drug dealer and saying, you know, say my name. Right. It just, but it just speaks to their talent because there's such a huge gulf, and to portray both, all sides of it with accuracy is amazing. But as much as you know, we'll we'll come back to Vic Mackey more, I'm sure, because he's awesome. But his strike team, we, I mean, we'd be wrong not to talk at a fairly decent length about Shane Vandrell, played by Walton Goggins, who is the also Aaron Paul of this show. I, I think Aaron Paul is the Walton Goggins of Breaking Bad is more accurate because much as I love Aaron Paul and Jesse Pinkman. I don't think he holds much of a candle to Shane Vandrell in a lot of ways. That's all I would just disagree me. with you. I, I would, when you think about how these characters are written and how they affect and how they affect the lead, you know, ultimately Jesse Pinkman for a good portion of the, of the series up until the very end. Actually, when you when you think about the similarities, they're again they were almost identical. He pretty much followed Walt's lead, you know, and he looked up to Walt in his own way through most of the series and eventually what comes between them is a woman and he turns on him because of that woman and in turn uh now it's mostly because the guy well i mean ultimately uh, he betrays him and what and what causes the betrayal is his is, is his feelings for this girl and what walt felt and what he felt walt did to her kid and when you look at what happened with shane and vic everything was going along swimmingly for the most part he was his most ardent follower until he met the girl who's crazy and decided that being with the crazy girl was more important than following Vic, and then everything fell apart. Yes, robbing the Armenian money train caused them upwards of all kinds of problems, not the least of which was driving Lem to the, uh, um, who I guess we'll talk about later, Lem to the brink of madness where he was burning money away. Um, but not even that necessarily really caused their demise so much, so much as Shane's relationship with the crazy woman, with the crazy woman. Well, you know, speaking to the crazy woman, Vic kind of was okay with her initially, and then he met her mother, so Shane's mother-in-law, 
And as soon as he gets the chance, because after they robbed the Armenian money train, uh, Shane's wife at the time, Shane's wife, she's his wife by that point, I think, follows him to the storage locker where they have all of the money stored. She takes some of it and gives it to her mother because her mother won't shut up about asking for stuff. I mean, if you listen to our show on The Sopranos, Pat Mullen and I had very similar opinions about Tony's older sister, uh, Parvati, I believe is what she was calling herself. I forget her correct name. But the family member who shows up and is always asking for something or playing some kind of angle. And we, and we joke that you know, every, every family has a member like that, and if you can't pick it out, it's probably you. But that's what her mother is like. And Vic meets with her, talks with her, and the first thing he says to Shane after they're alone is that woman is poison. Keep her away from you know, everything, basically. And you just you have to think, you know, if that's what the you know, there's the old saying that when you meet your wife's mother, you should pay attention because that's probably about what you're going to get. And <laughs> the the crazy runs in the family, as far as those two are concerned, at least. And yeah, causes all kinds of problems to strike teams. It is, you know, there are other problems there as well, but you know, women, lesson here, ladies and gentlemen, women screw with the bonds between men. They always have, they always will, so be very careful when you introduce your wife, girlfriend to your buddies from work because it very rarely ends well. <laughs> yes, if you're going to be a crooked cop or, or a, uh, a meth dealer, uh, you might want to put off getting involved with women because they will be your downfall. And yeah, absolutely, which is a very Shakespearean plot device, but <laughs> it is. And um, it was actually I, a feminist was, idea at the time. But again, my well, Shakespeare well, discussions can wait because I can go what's, for days for days about that. But getting back to kind of Shane, well, he became I, more. I, the other the other thing that drove me nuts about Shane was well, the, the other rather the other comparison I have to the uh, to Aaron Paul's Jesse Pinkman is that Shane Vandrell drove me crazy. The other three, the other two guys on the strike team, really all the other characters on the show, with the exception of David Acevedo, uh, who, who we'll get to sh- um, shortly, I suppose. Um, I liked almost every single character on there. I mean, I really liked uh, Dutch. You know, I, I liked Wims. Um, you know, I liked the two guys on the strike team. There weren't too many characters I had a big serious problem with. Shane annoyed the living shit out of me. And he got worse with his progressives. Now, I completely understand where you're coming from. And kind of like Jesse, it has to do with, and this is one of my personal pet peeves, So, I, but there's kind of an inherently limited vocabulary to the characters. Like, There's a reason Jesse Pinkman says bitch every other sentence. It's because if you remove that, he can't form a coherent sentence. <laughs> and Shane has kind of the same thing going on, and he has this weird accent in the series as well that kind of bugs me. I find his accent much more fitting and much more, therefore, tolerable in Justified, where he's a native to Kentucky, I think it is. I haven't watched enough Justified to be up on all the details. but And it fits there because, okay, a character from there would talk like that, but he has this weird, like, semi-repressed southern accent for the shield, that, and it comes out in odd places, and it did kind of drive me nuts. And yeah, Jesse he was like a closet weird... racist. And that's the thing. It's yeah. like nobody else in the strike team was particularly racist. And then, like, he would get so, and, and, you know, and, and that the Aryans were less annoyingly racist on Oz. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I mean, it it gets even worse when he gets into that fight with Tavon because he tells him he needs to be, he needs to know his place. And it's an odd statement to make. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, okay, you're the new guy on the strike team. You should, you know, 
be at the back of a line, so to speak. At the same time, you're saying you need to know your place to a black man who probably grew up during the civil rights era or was vastly influenced by them. It's just not a smart combination of words. And you need to look, no. you know, you just, and he wouldn't have said that if there wasn't at least reeks to me, Shane does, kind of of white trash. Yeah. Like, okay, why don't you live in a trailer? I mean, come on. And, you know, that everything about him fits a lot better in Justified because he plays a character very in line with all of what we just talked about. But in The Shield, he just seems a bit out of place. But getting back to what kind of made him interesting for me, I want. I think it's season four where he, after the strike team is broken up, he has he is on the street and he has a new partner, Armin something or other, played yeah, by Michael he's Payne. In the, and the, he's in the he, vice. He becomes the Vic Mackey and he starts corrupting this guy and slowly leading him down. You well, know, okay, bad. we're gonna make. Oh, he is. He's horrible. <laughs> he's horrible at it. But it was interesting to see him in a different role at least for a while before his before the level of annoyance caused by him kind of increased exponentially. This is, this is what I was gonna add to that. I. I remember watching it that season and just thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, I hope you stay on the Vice Squad. <laughs> I know you're one of the, I know you're one of the, the main characters of the show and that's not going to happen, but I would be ever so happy you just didn't come back. <laughs> I was I was quite happy with him being on the Vice Squad and not an actual, you know, full on member of the uh of the strike team, and I was like, please leave it this way. I was very bummed when he came back. Well, there's plenty of legitimate reason for that, but again, the relationship between him and Vic is again, one of the driving forces of the show. And like you said, you know, his wife, uh, Shane's wife, not Vic's, just starts kind of slowly driving a wedge between them. And in some cases, it's legitimate points that, you know, and in some cases, you know, semi-legitimate points. In other cases, it's almost like, you know, she would rather he be the king than Vic be the king, and she just wants to reap the benefits of being married to the king. And it, it just spawned that whole odd dynamic, and it was actually really, I mean, for my money, it was terribly sad in the finale when Shane decides the best way to handle this is to kill my entire family and then myself. Because the death of children is always tragic, but... Yeah, here's and his wife is crazy and probably deserves some of the blame. As again, a lot of spouses kind of fall into that. They know what's going on to one level or another, and they don't stop it. So a degree of blame has to fall on them to one extent or another, and it varies from show to show. But you know, they have those two little kids, and he the way it was shot and set up, it's just you know Vic's reaction after he reads Shane's suicide note to yank the camera out of the wall and just so he can have what I assume would be a mild tantrum slash breakdown was. Just, the perfect reaction to how all of that went down, and it was really sad in a lot of ways to see that happen. Yeah, happy with that. Well, I think, if uh, I remember correctly, this was to avoid prison, which ends up being Ronnie's fate. Yeah, it was because they had a. They were closing in on him in particular, and so Vic to kind of set up the whole thing. Vic cut a deal with I forget the name of the group again. It's been a while since I've seen the finale. Ice. But Ice, yes, thank you. He cuts a deal with them. Full immunity for him and his family and whatnot, because he thinks Shane is going to turn and make a deal. And so he's protecting himself preemptively. Shane winds up taking the coward's way out. Can we talk about that for a second? Can we we talk about that for a second? It's one of the greatest scenes in the history of the S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, it, uh, It reminds me of, sort of an odd comparison, go back to professional wrestling, but it reminds me of when Kane was in the anger management skits. And they're like, come tell us a little bit about yourself. And he's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I have an unhealthy, <laughs> and I have an unhealthy desire to con- 
Chokeslam beat Rose at WrestleMania. You know, like, he went, he went through his whole ridiculous history in the WWE in sort of a flat, matter-of-fact way, which had everybody who saw it laughing hysterically. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of a, uh, what the Vicks confession was like. You know, they had built, he had built up so much um, bad will, as it were. You know, he had done so many terrible things, and he had lied about so much that when he finally like comes to a full like this is one thing you haven't seen in Breaking Bad yet. Walt hasn't fully come clean about like everything that he's done. Even when they were gonna um, go off They're and black kill Jack Hank. Yeah, well, well, that's the thing. Like, like even the confession that they sent to Hank was not was nonsense. Um, yeah. But I'm saying when he he has an opportunity to to tell Jesse um, everything, and all he says is I let Jenny die, which is okay. the first time that's yeah. even been brought up. Um, well, but he's I never love that had... scene, and more on this a couple of weeks from now when we talk all the way about Breaking Bad, but I love that sequence where he goes in there and just the acting from Brian Cranston as he makes the conscious decision and is somewhat horrified by his decision to allow that poor girl to choke to death on her own vomit. Right, but she was exposed, she's exposing him to danger, and he felt like, you know, anyone that exposes me to danger has to go. So getting back to Vic Mackey, this is it. This is his opportunity to, you know, confess before his fellow police officers and, and God all of the terrible things he's done and get a clean slate. This is Catholic confession at its finest. And it's like you even see him just like, where do I even begin? I'm a terrible human being. You know, that, that's love, sort of a face that he makes. Yeah, I'm with you, and I love that whole sequence. I wanted to find an audio clip of it to play here because I love – but you know, I realized that, you know, without the facials of kind of everyone else involved, it didn't have as much power, and I couldn't find one that had the whole thing intact, and I'd end the parts, and yada, yada, yada. But he it's sits just, there, and like, great. okay, I get full... And they the deal they offered him, for those of you who don't know, is he gets full immunity for everything he confesses. So he sits down, he takes a minute to think, and says, I shot Detective Crowley in the face on such and such date, and the girl who's interviewing him and the people behind the one-way mirror... Or, you know, behind the glass, kind of like, wait, what, you shot a police officer? Yeah, he was closing in on me and the strike team, and I saw an opportunity, and he gives the details, and yeah, I shot him in the face. And she kind of, oh, oh, now, mind you, what's happening while in the background of all of this is, and they can't stop, this is it. They've all committed to this. They've signed a deal with the devil, and now, and they're reaping the, uh, uh, the punishment for it, the consequences. So, at the, so, at this point, um, Wind Claude and Dutch, Dutch have... Yeah, have come in dead through the back life. door. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they come in they, and they, they ask they, the other guy, and he looks at them. At, Vic is a little bit in, is still talking a little bit, and he looks and he looks at those two. And he says, "What kind of cops do you breed down here?" And she's like, "Well, what kind of a deal did you offer him?" <laughs> right. So you know, nobody knows exactly. The, yeah, they're thinking it's going to be some like, ah, we let this drug dealer go, or we were, you know, whatever. You know, they, they, they're not expecting the first thing to come out of Vic's mouth to be, "I shot a cop." So, you know, and then I, it just goes my, downhill from there. Yeah, one so of my favorite about, things, my two favorite things from that are he, you, you had just admitted to cold-blooded murder, and but you've got immunity. And she says, "Is there anything else?" And he says, "How much room does that thing have?" Because I don't want you to weasel out of this on some technicality. And proceeds to then discuss every horrible thing he's done over the course of the show, robbing the money train. He killed that bizarre Armenian played by Kurt Sutter who was sent to look into them and he just enumerates every detail from the start of the series to the end looks up at the end of it and kind of goes and okay, and then I, I 
shot so-and-so and made it look like a good kill. And that pretty much brings us to where we are now. And <laughs> the woman across the table from him just has this nauseated look. Oh, yeah, she looks like she's about to toss her cookies. Because she also realizes, cause, and it's important to say it this way, she's been had. Oh, she yeah. Just, what, what, what has occurred at this point, which she suddenly is realizing, is that she's been set up from the get-go to bring him to this point. She, he needed her not just for a new job, but for absolution. It was the only way out. His, his whole life was sort of falling apart at this point. And he needed her to absolve him of all of these things that Wims and Dutch were about to pin on him, and rightly so. So when she realizes that she's been duped, yeah, she's, she's about ready to throw up. Well, and for her to then, she turns off the recording, I think, and looks at him and says, you have just ruined me. And he just yeah. kind of blandly <laughs> looks down at the recording and says, well, I have done worse. <laughs> Yeah, it's just no, absolutely no, like, sense of what he's done, you know, just, you know, like, you made the, as he looks at them as if to say, you, you, the people that decided to go into business with me, your fault, you know, that's absolutely no responsibility for what he's done. Yeah, it's, I I love that whole scene, it's just awesome, and everyone involved does a terrific job as far as the acting goes. So can, can we take this back a step, a step, though, and just sort of tackle the, the, the sort of central theme here, and that is, you know, good guys gone bad? Because I started off this podcast with you saying, you know, who wants to root for the bad guy? You know, who roots for the antihero? Um, I, the question, and, and, I, and I guess I had started to say this before, they, you never get to see, as opposed to Brian Cranston's Walt, you know, or some of the guys we talked about on Oz or, McNul- you know, even with McNul- McNulty from The Wire. When you meet McNulty, he's, you know, he- he's already crossed over into, um, he's he sort of had it with uh, the way things the are. And he's part- <laughs> right. He yeah, had he- it with the system. Um, and so it's the same thing with Vic Mackey. You never, I mean, in some flashbacks you get a sense of it, but you never really get to meet the Vic Mackey who was a good guy. You're already introduced to a scumbag. That's what, yeah. The, that's, the only uh, time, the only time you see him differently is season three or four. I can't remember which, but there is an episode entitled "Alternate Pilot," which does not start. You know, again, the pilot introduces us as he's a scumbag and he shoots uh, Detective Terry Crowley, and we move on from there to the Ar- to robbing the Armenian mob, which was. <laughs> Oh, I bet if there was anything they wish they could take back, it would probably be ripping off the Armenian mob because that just spirals the whole thing out of control. But you get an alternate pilot, which is as the barn, which is their precinct house, it's an old church, is being set up. And you get a kind of reintroduction to the characters as this whole law enforcement experiment is coming together. You see David Aceveda, it's like his first position as captain or something like that. He and Vic shake hands. You get to see them meet, and Vic is just setting up this strike team. And... They wind up, he uses, uh, I forget the name of the prostitute that he kind of looks out for, but he meets her and he gets her to plant evidence on a major drug dealer who is notoriously meticulous about, I don't have any drugs with me. You know, I yes, he's a bad person, he's a big gangster, but he's very careful about not be, having anything incriminating on him at any given time. So Vic has her go in and plant evidence, which at that point, rookie cop Julian discovers which was kind of awesome because Vic kind of laid it out that way. But his, man, how many years' experience in this room and the damn rookie finds the kilo of heroin? 
But so you do kind of see them in that sense before it all hits the fan, so to speak. And after his justification, he's talking with I can't remember if it's Shane or Lem, but he says, "No, we need a big bust to solidify ourselves, and this is the only way we can do it within the allotted time frame before." they decide to try something different. So, you know, we'll just do it this once because we're under time constraints. We'll be able to, you know, then we'll do it right from there on out. And yeah. after that, near the end of the episode, he looks, I think he's talking with Shane at this point. They're sitting in the Strike Forces team room, and he looks at him and he says, man, that was easy, wasn't it? And just, you know, I think it was important that we got the actual pilot that we did because, again, it establishes Vic as not a good person in not even the most justifiable way after he shoots Crowley in the face. but And in, in that case, you see just kind of the beginnings of how he got to where he is. And it, it's almost doubly sad because you get the impression from him in that one episode that he's been a good guy up till this point. He's been a good cop. He's never done anything like this before. And it's just, you almost kind of wish we could see more of that guy because it's such a contrast to even later, in, you know, the next episode of that same season, he's just a very different person. And it's, it's really kind of sad because you just get that one glimpse into this is what he used to be, and you almost wonder, you know, what could have been if he if he'd stayed he, on if that path. If he didn't make a of, bad choice, you yeah. know, if he didn't, if you know, if he didn't make a choice and then attempt to justify that choice, and then but that's what happens with Liz, isn't it, Robert? You know, where oh yeah, you decide I'll just do it once. Easy, yeah, you decide you're going to take the easy way out. You decide you're going to take, um, you know, sort of the lazy way, and then you realize, hey, it's it's very easy to cheat. And nobody will even know that you're cheating um, in, when, when you first start, and so you cheat again. And suddenly you're cheating all the time, and then this just catches up to you. And by that point, you don't even know why you're doing it anymore other than it's easy. And, and yeah. that's sort of the way it works. Um, so, you know, it's a smartly written character in that sense, uh, a tragic character. But, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that we sort of, you know, made that link to, you know, yes, Vic Mackey was a good guy, and sort of the weight of his position in the world and how it works became too much for him. Um, and then, you know, and he became what we saw because everyone, because, you know, it's kind of like the O'Reilly thing, you know, he's such a cool character. You know, who doesn't want to you know, take a drug dealer's face and drive it into an oven and, you know, and be able to talk all tough to drug dealers and stuff like that. I mean, he does really, really cool things. So that's why it's, I think it's important um, to, you know, to, to establish, you know, throughout this conversation, that you know, despite all of that, he is in fact a tragic figure. You know, he's a guy who um, felt justified in his own mind, but ultimately was a terrible person. And as much as I hate the Corinne character, and I, as much as I hate Skyler, it's these annoying women who fear their husbands who remind us that what they're doing is terrible. You know, I actually found Corinne much less annoying than Skyler. Oh well, when you're you're gonna compare, I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, again, don't get me wrong. Objectively, yeah, she's kind of annoying, and a lot of our annoyance stems from her ignorance of events that are going on because she has no idea what kind of person Vic is and the things that he does. She just knows he's a police officer. He works hard. He provides for his family, and I mean, the poor guy has two autistic kids. I mean, that just sucks, you know. <laughs> I thought it was just one autistic kid. No, no, no. He had one. Only but, the son uh, that's autistic. He has a son that's autistic too, and you know, and he. And, you know, which, again, contributes to his, you know, I now have special needs children and there's no way in hell I can afford this on my salary. Right. Again, the, the, not to be the tragic divorce, justification but, of choices. Right. But, you know, it's like, well, you know, if I, if I got paid more to, you know, to keep the world safe, 
uh, I wouldn't need to do this, so I have to take. Yeah, and he uses a couple of shady favors to get uh, his daughter into an exclusive club, an exclusive uh, school for special needs children, which normally he could never hope to afford. And they don't want him there because he's just a cop and they have a lot of upper-class clientele. So he deliberately pulls some strings and locates an old ring that was stolen from her, gives it back to her, and and she says, I don't know how I can repay you for this. And he just looks at her like, what are you, stupid? You know how you can repay me for this. Right. Yeah, I I barely remember that whole thing. Yeah, but Skylar became exponentially more annoying once she re- once she and Walt became aware of what they were doing and started, you know, kind of working together. Because at that point, her un- you know, her annoying factor goes up because you don't even have ignorance as an excuse. I mean, when you had no idea, I could tolerate, I could understand from a personal perspective why you might react this way under the extraordinary circumstances. Okay, yes, I find it a little annoying as a person because not only do I know what's going on now, I have to deal with you stumbling through the dark, but you're written a little annoying. It's okay. Some wives are. Not speaking for all wives or all husbands, but some wives, statistically speaking, are annoying. <laughs> and But once she realizes, once Walt tells her, no, I sell methamphetamine, do you know how much I make in a day? And she then becomes even more annoying and more, like, horrified by what he does. I'm like, what the hell did you expect? Yeah, I mean, it's, they're very Corinne white on least, that show. <laughs> they're very, very white, very naive, very, like, what? Meth? Millions of dollars? I don't understand, you know? like. Okay, wait, I can't be compelled to testify against you, so let's make our money and get out of this. Oh, wait, you actually have to engage in criminal activity? You have to hurt people? Wait, no, I don't want to do this. And how dare you come home and sleep with our children in the, under the same roof? And what the hell did you expect? Yeah. You know, Corinne had a woeful ignorance, but she also wasn't a willing dupe either. Yeah. And, again, that, that's why I found her tolerable, because everything that she did came – and as soon as she found out, I mean, the scene where Claudette explains to her Vic Mackey's various – uh, felonies, among other things. She reacts as you should react. She immediately gets her children, leaves him, serves him with divorce papers from some other location. Just, no, you know, I was willing to kind of stand by you when I thought you were a good cop, and, you know, maybe if you took a shortcut here or there, I'm not there, I'm not on the job. You know, I, you know, okay, you're still my husband, I'll stand by you for little things maybe, but no, you've done all of this. You have amassed this mountain of shit, and I will not be buried under it with you. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, know, like I said, Corinne was moderately annoying, but she also was less annoying than uh, Shane, which served to help because I don't find Skylar more annoying than me. But that is also just – but another major player in the good guy, in the, you know, theoretically and potentially good people who make bad decisions and have to kind of deal with the consequences, we need to talk about David Aceveda. Okay. I want to stop you there. Okay. Because I wanna, I, I wanna, I wanna challenge you. I wanna, I'm gonna come on your show and I'm gonna point my finger in your chest and I'm gonna challenge you, Robert Winfrey, like no man ever has. All right. Okay. You walk into a gun. You walk, you walk into a house. A little tired. Sorry. Um, you walk into a house. Someone puts a gun on you, right? Yeah. And, and uh, so they got the jump on you. Just so drop your weapon. You do, because they, they got you dead to rights and you don't want to die. And you know, they put the gun on you, and they say, "Get on your knees and blow me." What do you do, no. Robert? Wynn? Your choice. I, your choices here are blow the guy or possibly risk being shot in the face. I don't have a pro. I don't necess- I don't theoretically have a problem with that decision. That you know, like you just said, that decision is you know, perform oral or die. 
And well, yeah, I haven't answered about... my question. No, no, no. I hang on, know I'm getting about... there. Okay. I, now, there are people out there, I'm sure, who would say, go ahead and shoot me in the face. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, you know, okay. I will, I'll stand, you know, I don't think he made a bad choice in that particular circumstance. I mean, it's a horrible circumstance, but there is no good choice there. His bad decision making starts after that. When he then decides, I can't possibly let anyone know this happened. I have to cover it up. I have to find this guy on my own, and I, and I, his, and I have, and now courtesy of this, I'm unable of this, you know, trauma. And let's, that's a trauma. I mean, I'm not trying to be, oh, yeah. I'm not trying to belittle anything here. The man, you know, he was sexually assaulted, and that's not a light thing. But the fact that he just has this stupid, and I don't mean to make this sound racist. So anyone, this is not a racist remark. I apologize if you take it this way. There is a cultural difference in the Latin, the Latino community that's been addressed several times where they have machismo, and that's a very different type of swagger and pride that goes along with the pride and kind of stupidity that comes with being a man, because we've got a lot of that too. So when you combine that with his stupid Latin pride, and again, I'm trying not to, I don't mean to be racist there. It's a cultural thing, not a racial thing, and it's just a phenomenon, not a... I'm not saying it's a bad thing. There are benefits, too. But when you combine those two things together, he can't talk about it. He can't seek the help that you need to seek after an incident like that because you can't just put it in the closet and go on, and that's what he tries to do. He locks it in his safe. He gets pictures of the guys, finds him, gets him sent to jail. And his decision not to just confront that whole issue out in the open, more or less, comes back to bite him over and over again, especially once he get, becomes elected to the city council because... Yeah, it's his Armenian money question, for sure. Yeah, because the person in question took pictures of it and had them somewhere. And if he'd just come out and said this happened while I was on the job, I, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to deal with, especially in a you know testosterone-fueled environment like that particular... <laughs> hang, hang on was. one second. Could you imagine twi- had there been a Twitter back then? <laughs> Okay. Oh, okay. Facebook man. was around, but it wasn't as popular uh, at that point. It would get, it would be popular in the in the coming years. Obviously, it's popular now. In fact, it's so popular, people are now starting to go away from it. Um, but like, my know, face wasn't even a huge deal at the time. It was getting there. Right. So there, there, so social social media and and the instant sharing of every intimate detail of your life was not so easy. Yes, we had camera phones, and you know, this is an op- obviously a situation where it was used, but utilize the camera phone to, uh, you know, to share. Instantaneously disseminate this stuff. Right. So, like I said, imagine there's Twitter, <laughs> you know, back when he rapes, you know, rapes this guy in the face. Oh, forget it. Acevedo would have been over. Acevedo would have been dead. Yeah, because he would have just blithely shared it at the moment and gone on from there, but... Right. Yeah. The point there being, if he had confronted this issue, I mean, it, it develops into a bigger deal. I, I mean, he thinks he's attained some level of closure after he kills the other guy involved and arrests the guy who did it to him and sends him back to jail. And he seems to think that this modicum of closure will react, will fix all of his problems. And in the very next episode, which is the next season, his wife is annoyed with him because he won't sleep in the same bed with her. He won't perform. And he's very, and his wife is very power hungry too, in the same kind of way that he is. She's very 
ambitious and, you know, oriented uh, towards moving up in the world. Her reaction so she, to when he finally admits it to her is fucking hilarious, by the way. Yeah, I mean, she you, goes... You, you, you suck? <laughs> like, took an absolute horrible thing and made it ten times worse. I know, I mean, she she knows that he's suffered, that something happened because he's been pulling away from her and everything, and she goes out on this huge rant, this big plea, like, just tell me what it is, we can work through it together. And just goes on and on about, you know, just tell me, you'll feel better about it, we'll get through it together, nothing could be that bad, and... The last, and you know, if you're about to, dis- he's made a huge commitment to never discuss this or acknowledge it again ever, and she convinces him to talk about it, and he does admit it, and everything she that he that she just said about figuring it out and working, it immediately goes out the window, and she runs off horrified, which of course justifies all in his mind everything he was. No, of course I'm not going to tell you. You'll run off and leave me and be horrified by this. And no, I won't. Just tell me, okay. I oh, no, no, she runs off and is horrified. <laughs> but she, what, was his, what, what cracked me up about that was, like, she can't even bring herself to really say it out loud. She just reduces it to one word, and it's the worst word out of the whole thing. And, I mean, yeah. like, look, I have never been face but, you know, should I, should that horrible thing ever happen? You know, I would, I would like to think that the person I'm confessing to isn't going to remind me of it, you know, in that particular, and the actual act itself, I mean. I almost uh, wanted him to say, what, like, you've never done it. I mean, something, just the way she reacted, it was almost like, well, you know, we are married, you've done this to me before. Well, (laughs) with my sense of humor, it would have gone something like, you know, suck? Oh, well, I don't know if suck is the right way, take a little balls a little, you know. I would have been sarcastic about it. You know, I think it'll yeah. bangle, whatever. But um, I, I have to say, and I and I make no judgments here, but I, I can't, I just, I cannot imagine a world where I would, and, and to, to my detriment, to admittedly to my detriment, because someone listening to this is like, okay, Rattle, it's whatever, um, I'd fight. I, I would absolutely fight. I would rather, cause, and, and here's the thing. Because they because they deal with this in the in the next season, um, you know. Ultimately, he gets over it, but you know, to a degree, you know, he kind of works through it with the prostitute and everything. And they sort of, you know, they have their moment where he attempts to take control back, um, while simultaneously putting her at risk. Uh, but you know, a, a life where you're constantly having to, you know, mentally relive that that incident over and over and over again, and the humiliation and everything else. You know, is what kind of life is that? And it's not one that, from my vantage point now, I I would be willing to. So, you know, do you live with the shame, or do you, or or do you die uh, fighting it? And there's no right answer to you know. And the one, and the one you you have, you might say, the strength and conviction to uh, endure this sort of thing, and then yet, and then fight through it later on in life. You know, or you take the risk of dying in that face. Yeah, dying in that instant. Um, you know, or not. Who knows? You know, but uh, that is that that is your choice, and you are perfectly willing, perfectly obligated to make that choice. Uh, it's not the choice I would make. Yeah, and I, hey, I don't, fair enough. Know if I can, you right. know, that, that's a choice that each person makes individually. So, like you said, no judgments being passed here. It was just a discussion of what happened. 
and right. vague hypotheticals. And and they discuss that in the show too. So the people are like like sort of an odd discussion to have about a television show. It's actually a huge theme of the, of the following season. You know, what do you do in that instance? You know, because here you have a situation where he's a cop. You know, he's trained to like you know in hand to hand combat and to deal with situations. And what do you do if you know if if you get if the if um someone gets the drop on you like that? He's trained to deal with it, and yet he makes that decision. And I think when when it gets out, people are to those that find out about it, they're like, what? they they can't even understand why he would make that decision. You know, they're just like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of inability to those that know about it to understand what possessed him to uh, to do that. You know, like why didn't he go? Why did you know? Why didn't he make the rattle choice? Why didn't he go down fighting? Um, and the and I think his argument at the time is, I wanted to live, and if I didn't, I was going to die. I was. I would surely die. Yeah, <laughs> self-preservation is usually a good is usually a good rationale for just about any action. Yeah, and I mean, again, I have to think that under different circumstances, you know, he would have reacted differently. I mean, it's one of those things that I have kind of a fun time with series like this. After you watch it the first time, go back and rewatch it just to pick out little moments, and you almost and just kind of think about you know, well, what if? And that sequence in that house where. He's with uh, someone, I want to say like a state trooper or sheriff's deputy or something like that. There's someone, again, law enforcement, but not a police officer under his ages. And he's, and they say, okay, let's go. You know, we got what we need. And he says, no, I'm going to stick around and look around here, and I'll be by myself without backup in a house the drug dealers use. And I remember rewatching that one episode and going, you know, I just wonder if he would have said either to that guy, yeah, I'll go with you, or... No, we should look here. I just like if there's two of them there, that whole thing goes differently, and then so much of the trajectory of the entire show is altered because of it. I mean, like, like I said when we talked about Oz, you know, I do wonder what life would have been like if Dino had actually drowned Ryan O'Reilly in the toilet in the pilot episode, and then gone on <laughs> to be burned by the gangster. Just, just to look at you know all the things that might have been different, and it's just kind sure. of a fun. Yeah, you know, there's something that I do that kind of amuses me at times, and that one I just. I almost said at the television just because of you know, what goes on after that. Just no, don't do it, you moron. You know, use your well, head. I um, I just like I said, I, I'm, our discussion got me into rewatching Oz again, and not to mention the fact that I know I haven't, I know I hadn't watched every episode of it. It's a lot of season four that I missed because at the time I was in the midst of moving, um, and then I didn't have cable for a bit of a stretch. So there's a lot of there was a lot of season four that I just never watched. So I'm going through it now, and um, I, I'm up to season five. But uh, as I was watching season four, which is about 16 episodes, there's a bit where um, Beecher pays to have Schillinger's son, the one that isn't dead, uh, we should go without saying, Schillinger's son found. And he says, you know, I don't want I – just, I just want there to be peace, and I want a clear conscience. So I don't want Schillinger to know that I'm the one doing this or what my reasons are. And I think what in, what ends up happening is that Schillinger suspects that Beecher's doing this as some sort of plot, sort of game, and he takes the opportunity of reuniting with his son to have him murder, kidnap and murder uh, Beecher's children. And it isn't until – yeah. well, well, he was going to kill them both. That was the plan. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then Mukata says to him – no, this was completely innocent, and you've taken it in a terrible direction. <laughs> you know, and it, and it's one of those rare moments where Schillinger has a crisis of conscience, which ultimately says, "I've done a terrible thing. Um, abort the plan. Give the kid, back. give the remaining child back." 
Um, well, and you, Schillinger and you has, has this, not to deviate too much back onto Oz, but Schillinger has this thing where everything that he does in his own mind is justified to one degree or another. And when he realized that, no, Beecher wasn't actually trying to screw with me, I did this without provocation in this particular instance, more, you know, again, because no one wins in a feud, because you're always trying to one-up the other guy. But at that point, they're more or less even if you were to measure out horrible things done to it. They're about at a level playing field, and Beecher's, you know, he's, I just, I want to, you know, I want peace. I want to be done with, <laughs> I want to be done with fucking Schillinger. I don't yeah. want to have to deal with him anymore, so maybe if I do this, it'll be kind of the olive branch. And and Schillinger, when he realizes that, is like, oh, crap, I did something horrible without a without even a quasi-legitimate reason. And again, everything, to, he at least has to be able to justify what he does to himself, and I don't think he could justify that to himself. No. And, and so the point that I was getting to was that, you know, how much different is that whole scenario if Beecher just says right from the start what he's trying to do and why he's trying to do it, and, and that's it. You know, maybe you know, neither one of Beecher's kids get killed or, you know, or kidnapped this time around. Um, so yeah. you know, the back to the shield, how much different is that if Aceveda actually goes in with backup like he's supposed to instead of being fucking super cop? Yeah, it's yeah, little things like that. I, I get a kick out of rewatching and finding stuff like that. And, again, I, I'm with you when, again, the people who do find out what happened to him, their reaction was, I mean, it was almost comical in that, oh, there's no way. You, you know, I mean, I, I get a kick out of that kind of because I knew so many people like that who felt the need to comment or you know, condemn someone for a choice that they made in a set of circumstances. And for them to then say, oh, no, I never would have done that. You know, what's the matter with you? Are you stupid? And, you, might, you know, it's easy to intellectualize the reality Sure. It's easy to intellectualize it and say, no, there's no way. When the reality is staring you in the face, it's slightly different and... Literally looking at you with, one, with its one eye. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, as I said to you before, you know, if I'm ever, God forbid, ever going to prison or confronted you know, with a situation where someone is trying to rape me, yeah, here and now in the comfort of my own home, you know, I can say to you, I, I'm Mr. fucking tough guy, and I'm going to fight You're and I die, I die. All, right? That's right. I'm hardcore. I'll take them all on. Yeah, I'm from the streets of Long Island, yo. Okay, so the suburbs, but that's hardly the issue here. Um, you know, but when, I, but when I'm confronted, you know, but when it's staring at me and, I, and, I, and all I can hear in the back of my mind is don't just stare at it, eat it, you know, maybe I react differently. You know, we, you never know until your metal is truly tested how you're going to react in the thick of this. Um, I mean, you, know, you got a wife and a kid. I imagine that would be running through your mind rather you know, high on the priority list as, wait, what happens to them if I die here? <laughs> Listen to Mark and Robert hypothesize over when it, when it is when it is not a good idea to blow a guy when your life is on the line. Anywho. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Moving on um, from our pseudo-Freudian discussion. Well, hang, hang on. The one thing I want to say about Aceveda is I'm sure there's, there's more to the character than, than the, time he, the time he got romantic with someone's junk. But Here's what I what I want to kind of end this whole rant on, and it goes back, actually back to Oz, uh, oddly enough. And um, I was actually just watching the episode today where uh, the Aryan uh, gang raped Gunzel, but it was an, an episode or two after Peter Shabetta got raped for a second time, this time by Schillinger, where he infamously says, "You know, you know, I've always what I, you know, you know what I've always wondered is if my dick's as big as Arabi's. You be the judge." Ha ha ha. Um, and Peter Chabetta is raped for a second time. Um, 
and there's a discussion that takes place between um, Rita Moreno, Sister Peter, Sister Peter Marie, and Warden Glenn. Um, oh gosh, what the hell is his real name? Well, it doesn't matter. Ernie Hudson. Warden Glenn. Ernie Hudson. Thank you. Um, hey, you think like we didn't, didn't just talk about this weeks ago? <laughs> uh, and Great, she's like, okay. you know, I, I'm I'm having trouble getting through to Peter Shabetta the second time around here. Uh, I want to find, you know, and I feel like he would be better off if I found if we found the people who raped him, and there's absolutely zero interest from Ernie Hudson. Just kind of, meh, shit happens. And she says, you know, and she's, and she's trying to figure out why exactly he's underreacting to uh, essentially a, a failure to, to protect the inmates, which has become systemic and a real problem. And he says, you know, my feeling is that rape has a leveling effect. Rape has a leveling effect on People who come in to Oz and think they're all big and bad and want to run the show. Rape has this amazing ability to turn them around and, you know, where they, uh, they, they realize the gravity of their situation and it humbles them. He says levels. Um, the, really what he's saying is if you come into Oz thinking you're the shit and you can't fight off being raped, then you, you are humble in the eyes of, your, of the Lord and the other inmates. And you know your place. And, of course, she does not see it that way. Um, Aceveda came off as a real prick in the first season of the show. And I always felt that he was sort of a slimeball character and that, you know, his sort of loose association with Vic where, you know, he would give Vic – he never liked Vic and he never trusted him. He was willing to give him enough of a leash uh, to, to suit, suit Aceveda's own needs. So he comes across yeah, sort of a turned double... in good number. You yeah, know, we talked about the wire. Like... You know, there's a season of the wire where the entire law enforcement upper echelon is berated because their numbers are bad. Never mind whether they're right. actually doing good. The numbers have to add up. And in that same line of thought, Vic doesn't make headlines. He produces good. I mean, you know, the first, you know, when he in season three when the uh, Quintero brothers show up, uh, Armadillo specifically. And you get, and the first thing that winds up happening is they go to a elementary school or a middle school, young kids, like barely teenager, and they go through, they do a locker search of the entire school, and half of them or so have drug, you know, illegal drugs of some kind. Aceveda immediately turns to Vic, and and you know, Vic comes to Aceveda and says, you know, you asked me my relationship with Tio, his informant who he was cutting slack. I cut him a little slack on the street, so stuff like this didn't happen. After and, and Aceveda is now pissed because not only does he have a bad headline, he doesn't have control of the city. And right. when Vic could keep a lid on things, it's like, okay, don't do any. It, it was kind of a you know, you you know, you keep doing what you're doing without drawing any attention. I'll keep climbing up the ladder, and I won't have to deal with you in a little bit. Either I'll be promoted or elected to city council. Right, and, and the then point you're someone that else's problem. Right, and the point that I was kind of getting to was. He just felt like a double-dealing slime to me, and he wasn't interested in the greater good. He was interested in his own, his own personal gain, he's a his, uh, his, own, his own political gain. Right. And then he's raped in the face, and I was like, good. Good for you. You fucking deserved it. You know, which takes us back to the initial discussion we had. What the hell is wrong with me that, you know, I, I feel like um, raping somebody I get the sense is, you're also very – you have a very strong divider line between fiction and reality. <laughs> sure, I, w- I would More not take it upon very, myself to be a vigilante. Yeah, I think <laughs> there's a very small number of people you would actually in real life that you would say no, you deserve to be raped. No, there are very few, if any. 
I'm not saying um, so there I, aren't I, people like that out there. There are, for my money at least, but well, by and large. <laughs> don't be evil, Robert Winfrey. Um, I can't tell. No, you're absolutely right. I'm not sitting here walking around going, you know, if this is actually the conversation that I have a lot of times with my wife, who, you know, we're, we're both technically conservatives, but she's a teacher and I'm a social worker. How possibly conservative could we be, right? So we have these discussions, and they're, they're very philosophical. It's, you know, what do you do with somebody who cannot be saved? What do you do with somebody who cannot be taught? With social workers and teachers, this is the kinds of things we talk about. And, kind of people you, you know, and, and she actually reminded me of this today where we where you know, it's like this is why you and I, when we have these sort of philosophical discussions, kind of come to the conclusion of why don't we just kill them? Because what else could we, po- you know, what else can you possibly do that would be worthwhile? You know, so, um, you know, so when it comes to you know, characters like Aceveda, sure, they're fictional characters that drawn a certain way. Um, and they induce that kind of a reaction from me, which I guess is what they're supposed to. You know, we said before the show started tonight, I, I was, you know, cheering the Nazis for shooting the DEA agent. Let's remind ourselves, despite the fact that you may or may not like Hank, the DEA is doing a good thing for the greater good. And I cheered the neo-Nazis by, the, did I mention I'm Jewish? You know, <laughs> shooting this fucker in the face. So, you know, it's it's one of those where... Um, you know, I guess I'm having the reaction that, um, you know, that the writers wanted me to have. It's just an odd reaction because, again, you end up cheering for the bad guy. But um, the whole point of this thing, and I swear to God I'll stop taking your show hostage, is that, uh, is that the leveling effect. It made, Aceveda, it made Aceveda a more sympathetic character. Oddly enough, the whole rape scenario with him... Um, and then the, 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 the next season where he was less dealing with his political aspirations and more with the, uh, with the trauma and the internal um, terror of what he was going through made him a much more interesting and sympathetic character in my eyes because I absolutely hated him. No, I, I agree. He was, you know, he was kind of a – that was one of my issues with early on. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, he's kind of a slime ball, and he lets Vic you know, kind of run roughshod, but at the end he – he is still, in some ways, you know, a good person. Again, not a not a very good person because he's a two faced politician, and I hate politicians more than almost anything else. Except maybe you think they should break their face. Yeah, some you know, it, it. I agree with you. It had an interesting effect on the character, and it gave us something to you know, make him more three dimensional in a lot of ways than just ambitious politician number thirty seven who happens to be a police officer at the time. Yeah. All right, we're down to about 12 minutes of on-air time before we go into record mode. So for anyone listening live, and I hope there's some of you, if we cut off the air, it's because we're going over. Links on (laughs) Facebook and Twitter will follow to the archived version, which will have the thing in its entirety if we go over. If you're still listening after that discussion, give yourself a pat on the back and a hearty hearty well done. Yeah, congratulations. (laughs) But one of the things that I feel makes Mackie and the strike team and everyone else Kind of an intre- you know, one of the things that makes you look at them in, in some cases, a slightly more positive light is the reality of the people that they have to deal with. And specifically, I want to talk about one. Okay, legal disclaimer: If you heard, I was, I did a guest spot on the Long Road to Ruin. I've been there a couple of times. I will be there again this October discussing Hellraiser because Mark doesn't watch horror movies and is taking a bit of a vacation. So Sean Comer and I are going to get into that. But I was there for the Scream franchise, and one of the things I hated about Scream 4 and tend to hate in general is Anthony Anderson. I don't <laughs> find him funny. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get somewhere with this, I promise. I don't like him. 
I don't like his movies, I don't like his comedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Generally speaking, Anthony Anderson means suck, as far as I'm concerned. The one exception is his character in The Shield, who is a evil drug dealer, but he is also a very intelligent evil drug dealer. He tries to, he masks his underworld dealings with the guise of civic responsibility, and he's trying to help the black man get out from under the thumb because they're still oppressed, and preaching about how, no, we don't need to sling crack. We can take these skills that the white man has forced us into and use them to his legitimate business, and we can stick it to the white man, all the while he's actually incur- all the while he's dealing drugs and in some kind of an evil deal with Shane Vandrell. So a very two-faced character, but the, his character was the first time I saw Anthony Anderson and went, wow, he didn't horrifyingly detract from this. I have to say, he was he was um, the uh, Jim Carrey of this show for me. Um, I don't know if you've heard other episodes of Long Road Room where I've talked about my absolute hatred for Jim Carrey movies. Um, I, I think his comedies probably are some of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, I know a lot of people like to pick on Adam Sandler now, but at least Adam Sandler used to make movies that were funny. He doesn't anymore. Now, now That's he a makes, debatable point, but okay. Now he makes policies um, that get, that enrich his friends and uh, oddly enough make money for studios, but are not actual movies, nor are they any good. Um, but once more time, you, he I, I assume you feel about Jim Carrey the way I feel about Ben Stiller, and that's burn this man at the stake. He has no redeeming qualities. Yeah, well, like I said, Jim Carrey movies are generally terrible. However, when you put Jim Carrey, I was one of the few people. I, I remember this when he was on the video, the MTV Video Music Awards, and he was um, either he was promoting, I think, Liar Liar, but he had um, he was being nominated for the Truman Show. And he said something. He made like an off. Like he was doing a bit where he was being. He was playing his character from Liar Liar, where he was saying he was in a very pressured manner of speaking. He was um, making all of these direct comments. So like he was saying, like you know, I have all of these fans that love me in comedies, but don't know what to think of me in a drama. And I remember thinking, well, I guess I'm not a fan because I think your dramas are fantastic. I love the Truman Show, and I thought for once, for once. Jim Carrey actually displayed acting as opposed oh, yeah, I, to I'm with you. Truman his Show, minstrel routine that he does. Truman Show was vastly ahead of its time. I mean, that that, that seems to be a, you know, what, what constitutes a show that's ahead of its time. But when you look at the Truman Show and remember the year that it came out, and you look at where reality television went in the years between then and now – and it suddenly becomes much more of a realistic possibility that that show may have been, you know, somewhat prophetic. Yeah. So the point that I was getting to was that um, Anthony Anderson sucks in everything except the Shield. Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah kinda, you're, he you're, he you're, went from being the goofball Anthony Anderson that you kind of roll your eyes at and go, "Please go away, get off my screen." I ate all the donuts because the script says so, and now I can ask for an antacid. Well. I'm in a Transformers movie for some godforsaken reason. Screw you, Michael Bay, for ruining my childhood. But he goes from that <laughs> well, to being this quiet, menacing, I sit in the yeah. car and stare daggers at Shane Vandrell when he gets mad at my subordinate and says, it's only you and me face-to-face from now on. Or he looks at Vic Mackey and says, no, you're not going to get anything on me. I put her partner in his grave before he got me in jail. We'll see how good you do. Right, and that's, that's what I was getting to. Your your visceral reaction to Anthony Edwards and his you know minstrel style comedy, not being a racist, it is what it is. Deal with it, fucking people. He was a he, you know Anthony Edwards in his comedies acts as a minstrel. He acts the fool. 
Um, Anderson, not Edwards. Whoever. Um, well, no, yeah, There's a vast difference. Anthony Edwards is a balding white guy with ginger. He's a redheaded balding white guy with glasses who was a standout in the first couple of first couple of seasons of ER. Anthony Anderson is neither white nor red haired nor was ever on ER to my knowledge. So Anthony Daniels, um, <laughs> you know, is the is the, uh, you know, is the Jim Carrey of this show. Awful in comedy, awesome in a drama. Like, huh? This is what, which makes me feel like so much of Hollywood is just so goddamn lazy. It's like, hey, you, donkey, do something funny. Dance for the piece. And, like, that's enough. But if you actually, like, direct the man and give him, you know, a proper acting role, he can show you that he actually has talent. And it's almost a shame that guys like him and Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler, who's another one, who when you actually give him an acting role, can act and is very good and is very good in dramas. Unfortunately, he does a lot of fart comedy. He's another minstrel. It drives me crazy. Yeah, I, honestly, I the funniest movie I've ever seen that has anything to do with Adam Sandler was Anger Management, and that was because he got to play the straight guy. And I found him much more <laughs> entertaining as the straight guy with Jack Nicholson being the over-the-top character as opposed to potentially even the other way around. No, I hated Anger Management, and I hated Punch Drunk Love. Um there's other stuff I've seen Adam Sandler in where he was absolutely outstanding, but he also wasn't the writer. Um, so anyway, back to Anthony Daniels. Yeah, I and I got a kick out of him saying, you know, let's see how far you get to Vic Mackey because he has he clearly has no idea that if you piss off Vic Mackey, he has no qualms whatsoever about going outside the bounds of the law to screw you over. <laughs> Which was a similar reaction I got, and the other one that we need to talk about, um, Forrest Whitaker played in. I can never remember the character's name, but he played an internal investigations agent who was I looking into the strike. Forrest Whitaker's neck. Sorry, go on. But and he knows just how dirty Vic Mackey is. He knows all the horrible things that he's done. He actually manages to get something on Lem, which is what leads to Shane blowing him up with a grenade, which is a precursor to him being blown up on a landmine in Sons of Anarchy. But I think Kurt Sutter just likes blowing that guy up. <laughs> I said, that was my first reaction when I saw that sequence in Sons of Anarchy. He steps on the mine and he goes, are you kidding me? And then blows up. And I thought, man, Kurt Sutter just likes blowing that guy up, which is moderately amusing because I enjoy blowing people. I, I, had, I enjoy the theory of people being blown up under the right circumstances. They broke the fourth wall on Sons of Anarchy. That's hilarious. He didn't look at the camera and say, and it wasn't like not – he didn't say something stupid like not again, but he steps on the landmine. <laughs> And his response is, are you – I forget exactly what he says, but it's something like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I actually stepped on a landmine. And it's gotcha. even funnier. It's funnier if you know the back – it makes sense in context. It's also funnier if you know what happened in The Shield. Okay, fair enough. But he decides – because he knows how dirty Vic Mackey is, but for the love of all that's holy, he can't get any evidence. After Lem gets blown up, he has nothing on the strike team. And yeah. drives himself into a frenzy trying to figure out how to get at Vic. And at the end of the day, he decides, I'll frame him for Lem's murder. And as soon as he does that, like, Vic tells him, you know, you're not ready to play on this level with him. Which is immediately proven true because Claudette figures out that uh, <laughs> Forrest Whitaker set him up and illegally planted evidence and whatnot. And his reaction of, you know, I, <laughs> I framed a guilty man. Right. Again, the ends justify the means. You come right back to it again. You know, it's... And it's almost he's a, interesting. It's, he's really interesting in that case because you see him come in as a good guy. I mean, he's opposed to Vic Mackey, which kind of makes him a bad guy. But 
he is there to do a good thing. You, know, you have dirty cops. You want them off the street. You want people like him investigating them and putting them away. That You should want that. And you just see that he starts making choices because he's so desperate to get Mackie off that he eventually – I mean, he almost turns into him until he confesses. And one of my favorite scenes in the whole series, when he's in jail and Vic comes down to visit him there, and the way they shoot it, you can't tell who's behind the bars. You see the bars between them, but you never see who's in the cage. And Forrest, and Forrest Whitaker tells him at some point, you know, I'm at peace. I'm okay with that. Your shitstorm is still going to catch up with you, but I'm not going to be caught up in it. You know, it's funny. Um, real quick thing in Oz, Lance Reddick's character, uh, he plays an undercover uh, detective who's trying to investigate the drugs in Oz. And along the way, um, you know, in order to not blow his cover, he ends up using, he becomes addicted. He kills another, um, he kills a cop who was going to, who was um, going to give away his cover. Um, and uh, at one point it all kind of comes to a head and he's uh, rooming with, with Augustus Hill and Augustus says to him, usually, you're not a cop, you're a fraud. At which point he turns himself, and he, first he beats the shit out of him, but, um, you know, he, uh, he ends up turning himself into the warden and says, and then they were like, you know, we would have never suspected anything. You, there, was, there was no way of knowing that you killed the cop. Why did you turn yourself in? And he says, because I'm not a fraud. And that, you know, and, and it rings true here with Forrest Whitaker and Vic Mackey. That's kind of what Forrest Whitaker said to him. It was, I have to live with myself, so I'm not going to continue. And I almost lost myself trying to emulate you. So I'm not going to do that anymore. But, uh, you know, as you said, your shit storm is still coming, you know. And, uh, and when you see how it all ends with, with Mackey, um, which we should talk about before the show is over, uh, yeah. you know, he's absolutely – it was a – it was a ghost of Christmas future moment, really. You know, it was he was absolutely right. Vic Mackey ended up in his own version of hell, which is exactly what Forrest Whitaker predicted was going to happen. You know, so it was kind of like Vic Mackey won the battle but lost the Yeah, and you get a really kind of a fun scene between them, and I think it's the last scene. I might be wrong about that, but you see his character again, and he's no longer with law enforcement. He's a janitor, I want to say, or something like that, and Vic runs into him purely by coincidence, kind of towards the end of the reign of Vic Mackey. And their, their interactions are so oddly wonderful to watch because neither one of them really you – know, it's one of those situations where you have to read between the lines of the dialogue, which is a theme in shows like this, especially in The Wire, where they don't do flashbacks and you have to pay attention. But some of their interactions in that sequence are just – they're just really fun to watch. And you're absolutely right. We need to touch on the end of – Vic Mackey, because just to set up a bit of this, after he has confessed his laundry list of crimes, and Claudette kind of gets on the woman from ICE about giving him a about giving him full immunity on anything he confesses to, and Vic was more than happy to confess to everything, so they couldn't get him on a technicality. She says, "You know, I may have had to make this deal, but Vic will never be on the streets again. I'm going to make him do nothing but sit in a cubicle and type reports." For the next, uh, you know, for the next 20 years, and you know, if you know Vic Mackey, I'm not sure the man can type effectively. So him doing nothing but writing reports day in and day out would, like you said, it, it's his version of hell. It's like, well, why am I still here? Right. He had he had lost everything, including it, including his identity. You know, his identity was very much he was, you know, this street tough cop. You know, who you know who was almost a vigilante. He was writing the wrongs of a system that was inherently broken, hello, the wire. So, you know, 
and then they took it all. Uh, he lost his friends. He lost his strike team. He lost his badge. He lost his uh, ability to uh, right wrongs and be that person. He lost his entire identity. He may have gotten away with murder, but in the end, he lost his soul. He lost his family. I mean, he took an incredible risk, and he cracked out the entire way. He got nothing for all of those things that he did. He didn't get the money from the Armenian money train. He got nothing. You know, after when it was all said and done, yeah, it's a uh, it's it's an incredibly powerful ending because you know you you rode with this character now for seven uh, seasons. I don't remember how long in years the show was on, but you know it's quite a long ride. And when it was all said and done, what the writers told you is everything this man did was wrong, which which was which was good because you really don't want the the moral of these stories to be wrong. Well, now what? Hey, look, there's, any, there's all kinds of ways that could have ended. He could have ended in fucking paradise with some Hayek, for all we knew, you know. <laughs> you know, and, and then he gets because that's the way a lot of a lot of movies end. You really get a movie like Blow, for example, which I realize was based on a, a real life story of a Colombian drug lord. But you know, at the end of Blow, uh, Johnny Depp's character is alone in federal prison, um, and everybody in his life has written him off, and he has delusions that he gets visited by his daughter that don't actually happen. Um, you know, I think it's important, you know, in Hollywood is such, without getting into politics, you know, Hollywood is such a skewed view of morality that it's not, it's not above a writer to make the moral of a story cheating is good. You know, nah. <laughs> cheat to win, as Eddie Guerrero would say. And hey, look at the Fast and the Furious franchise. That is nothing I but glorifying not. chronic illegal activity. Right. That's another these, I generally you... don't care for it. But yeah, I, I've never it. watched the Fast. I've never watched the Fast and the Furious movies because I don't really have a thing for cars. I guess I'm going to eventually because I have a show about franchises, and that's one of them. Um, but uh, you're right. You know, that's a situation where the, sh- the movies are about bad people doing bad things, and, and they're written as heroes. Or the remade Ocean's Eleven franchise. Thank you, George Clooney. Yes, that's a good example. There's a bunch of chronic thieves who have the slightest personal moral justification for doing horrible things that screw up everyone else's life. And, we're, and we root for them because they're written to be the good guys. Right. And it's just, you're right, it's so, it's one of the great things that when you get into television, in a lot of ways, especially good television, when you get to an ending, there can be a legitimate ending that makes you kind of look back on everything that happened up to that point, which is what you get with The Wire when McNulty is kind of looking out over Boston Harbor and we get, or Boston, Baltimore, and we get that closing montage of where everyone wound up being and the fact that nothing had actually changed, hence life is useless. <laughs> or you, hey, you, It's a nihilistic <laughs> argument, but it's one I've made successfully before. Yes, I was going to say, you are such a nihilist, it cracks me up. Hey, I, I can make those arguments, and I generally have fun doing it. But when you get, or, I mean, the flip side of that, of course, is if you get a weird ending that doesn't, that people focus on instead of looking back on everything, such as The Sopranos, where everyone's so... Everyone's more focused on what happened at the end as opposed to looking back on all of the poor decisions and whatnot that were made along the way and actually looking at the morality of it and whatnot. You get that with Vic. He's sitting there typing on a computer. He hears police sirens in the distance, and he almost breaks down into tears because that's where he feels he needs to be. That's where he wants to be, and he's stuck here at a desk wearing a suit, and it's just it's his own version of hell. That is yeah. absolutely the worst thing he could possibly be doing. So I'll ask you this question. It's come up in, in private conversations I've had about the show. Do you think he went home and killed himself? No. Okay. 
But do you know why I'm asking that question? Because it's a legitimate line of thought. <laughs> I don't. Well, you know. Y- y- you want my personal opinion? No, I don't think he would. I don't think he'd kill himself just because most sociopaths don't. But right. do I? But is it a legitimate line of thought to think that here he is stuck in his own personal hell and he might decide to go home and often? Yeah, he might do that. You know, that's a. If you're speculating, that makes sense. That's not a bogus. That's not a bogus way to think about it. It's not like some of the so crazy are, stuff that people people who well, I talked we, to who were fans of the show have you know have speculated, and that's why I was asking. I'm mean, I have my own thoughts about it, but people have said that like, oh, the, the real ending of the of the is that he went home and blew his brains out. Other people are like, no, Vic, as you said, Vic Mackey loves himself too much. You know, de- de- has a healthy enough ego where he would never blow himself up. You know, people. You know, he smiles at the end of the at the end of it. So people, so other people have speculated. All he thought he, you know, at the end of the day, he was like, "Huh, I got away with it," which I don't think is right either. I think what we've talked about is really the end of that story. He knows that his life is basically over, but he's go, but he's it's, it, he's living in a prison essentially. He's serving a sentence, and that sentence is loneliness, regret, trauma, the whole, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but but he will live with it. He will live with it. He doesn't kill himself. Now, I'm with you. I don't think he went home and committed suicide, but to people who think that and to people who have speculated about that, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say there's no way that could have happened and given you X, Y, and Z as to why it couldn't have happened. It's a legitimate line of thought and a legitimate hypothetical situation to go into if you're going to go into it. I mean, if you want some comedically off ones, look at what people thought happened at the end of The Sopranos. There are whole websites dedicated to what really happened, put really in quotes, because the show just ended, people. And you get some odd stuff in there, but you know, to fans who like to think about what went on after the series ended within that you know, little universe, if you think Vic Mackey went home and blew his head off, I'm... I disagree, but I'm not going to say you're wrong. Let me put it that way. So, Mark, any final thoughts? Uh, final thoughts. Anything I'm not you bring up anything you feel that we've missed? Well, we have not really talked about Dutch or Wims or um, whatever the cop's name was. Who the subplots with him were surrounding his Christianity at war with his homosexuality, which I have no uh, interest Julian. in talking about. And you, yeah, and usually fast forwarded through his scenes. Um, but. Uh, I, I just want to say that my probably my favorite character on the show. I legitimately enjoy detective stories and detective work. Um, I, I so, like so naturally you'd like Claudette and Dutch because they do legitimate, honest detective work throughout the course of the season. They're yeah the good cops. They're the moral center. They're you know the notion of a bunch of Vic Mackeys being on the police force is terrifying. The notion of a police force full of Claudette whims is what it's supposed to be. Yep. I always, first of all, I thought Dutch was a very interesting character. I thought he was a fun character. Um, I like, you know, and this, maybe again, this tells you about how I'm wired. But I, I enjoy characters who are extraordinarily intelligent. You know, who kind of can't keep me guessing. You know, who figure stuff out. You know, I like sort of the concept of a like Sherlock Holmes. You know, somebody who, yeah, who's, um, you know, I his final scene in in the Shield is. You know, he's finally unleashed because he, he had been handcuffed for a while in terms of questioning people. And he's finally unleashed to do what he does best, which is interrogate you know, and solve crimes the old-fashioned way with, you know, good old-fashioned detective work. He is the yin to uh, to Vic Mackey's yang. You know, he, he, is, um, he is supposed to be what the job is about. So I always found his character fun and interesting. I have no – I have absolutely no thoughts about Claudette. She was sort of just, you know – 
She was what she was. She was sort of the moral center of the whole thing, and she suffered. Well, you need a you need an actual moral center in shows like this. Just if for no other reason than to somewhat remind people of no, this is right and wrong, and here's and here's all these people who are way off base. Yeah, and and and, 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 have, and a reminder that the job can be done legally <laughs> without yeah. resorting to vigilante violence. Um, but I, I enjoyed his character more because of the kinds of stuff that he did. You know, he was sort of the super detective solving uh, solving all kinds of crimes and stuff, and it was fun, and I enjoyed watching that. Well, he's obsessed um, with detective work. That's a big yeah. deal with him. He is constantly – one of it – there's – I forget what – it's in the second season, I think, where they stumble across the serial killer, and his big goal is now to catch the serial killer because – that's what you know. You catch the serial killer, and you know that's what books are written about. That's what he's. You know, I have to imagine when he was a little kid playing cops and robbers, his whole his fantasy went something like, "You've killed thirty people. I've been doggedly on your trail, and now I catch you." And that's kind of how it went. So when he actually got to track one, it was like the highlight of his life. To that point, we saw him get into it and try different things, and eventually he does catch him. Do we talk about him killing the cat? With, yes, he catches very, uh, he catches a couple who is a they're a couple of sadistic sociopaths. They like to kidnap and torture women, and he brings the couple in for questioning. He believes that the woman is the submissive partner, and that if he becomes aggressive and forceful, she'll crumble and reveal to him everything. And she does crumble, but doesn't reveal anything to him. I mean, the woman whose hand has been cut off is actually in the trunk of their car, which is in the police parking lot. And he meets with that the husband of that later on. No, different husband. I'm confusing them now, aren't I? Because he doesn't know. This is the actual serial killer that he catches. Or it's another one who comes to him and says, I want to know why I do what I do. And Dutch says, yes, I can help you figure out why you do what you do. They spend an entire episode. All of Dutch is interacting with this serial killer. Oh, it's the cuddler rapist murderer. That's it. So I... I'm juxtaposing a bunch of his different cases because they're actually kind of interesting, but this person who kills elderly people is kind of his goal. And he, the killer himself says, you know, killing is a selfish act to take someone's life, everything that they could do after that, just so you could feel that thing that I feel when I do it. And it just old people made more sense because they have less life to live. And Dutch is trying to convince him that he's an organized sociopath. He is. And the guy keeps telling him, I'm not just a type, and Dutch has no personal answer for that. And, of course, the correct response is, yes, you are just a type. You're more than just a type, true, but at your core, you are just an organized sociopath, and you just can't – and you're like all serial killers who have to pretend that there are more than there are. But he gets into Dutch's head with, you know, you've never killed anything. You have to you – know, when you see the life go out of their eyes, it's – and there's no way to accurately describe it. And he tells Dutch, you know, if you've never done it, you can't possibly understand Dutch actually can't help him based on what that guy says, so he goes home and he strangles this stray cat so that he can watch the life drain out of it, so that he can understand what other what serial killers might get out of. Yep, and it's he the kills a cat so he knows thing. what it's like to kill. It's the oddest thing, a little bit, because you know he's kind of been feeding that cat and it's been keeping him up at night, and he strangles it, and the cat kind of fights back, of course, but. And it, it's odd because the whole incident is almost never referenced again. I mean, like the next episode, Claude had asked him, so is that cat still keeping you up at night? Uh, no, because I killed it. <laughs> but it's weird because you'd think something like that would have greater implications, and you only get a couple of glimpses of it because he tries to use – there's a couple of times when Claudette is lead detective on something, and he tries to maybe put an, a different spin on it, and she, if she thinks she's right, she'll tell him, 
no, don't overcomplicate things. Sometimes, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, nine times out of ten it's horses. Very rarely will it actually be zebras. And sometimes so, a sorry cigar is just there. a cigar. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I've cut you off so many times in this episode that I was, I was like, like, let me actually let the guy talk. Um, but, uh, yeah, I always – I thought it was a, a very real moment for him. Um, like I said, I've already gushed about his character. Uh, there's so – you know, I mean, throughout the course of seven seasons, he does a whole hell of a lot. Um, and, and I don't know what other people thought of him, but I all I can say is I always thought – Here's actually what I wanted to say about him. I always found the subplots involving him to be interesting, whether it was him dating Corinne or um, him dating another person involved in a case or just the actual cases themselves. You know, his, you know, he was sort of, he's also, you know, just to tell you that nothing changes from high school or junior high. He's considered, the, you know, Vic Mackey is the jock. He's the nerd. Um, and so Vic Mackey and him are, um, antagonists of one another, and so I always I enjoyed watching that sort of interplay. Um, and it's it's one of those I guess it's kind of rare, if only because there are certain characters on shows whose subplots I could not give a shit less about. And when I watch them in repeats, I tend to fast forward through. You know, Breaking Bad. Just to kind of round this, taking this back to Breaking Bad for a moment. Anything involving Hanks, for example. Um, a lot of the stuff involving Skylar and the the affair that she has. I was like, I That's just don't key. care. Get back to making meth, you know? <laughs> like, I remember one season where, where uh, they dealt a lot with his cancer and stuff, and I was just like, did they ever make meth on this show? Is this ever going to happen? I actually liked the season where they dealt a lot with his cancer, and he thinks he, – he decides it's a good idea to look at the MRI scan without a doctor present, with just a technician, and he sees the big white splotch on his chest and thinks, oh, crap, that's the tumor. So he then sacrifices a bunch of time and energy to go out in the middle of the desert and cook the rest of the methylamine that he has so he can make a bunch of meth, gets back, and the doctor tells him, no, this is just some inflammation we need you to. We'll put you on these pills. It'll go down. Your tumors have actually shrunk by 80%, and <laughs> I, got, I just got a kick out of that whole thing, and then... He goes into the bathroom and punches a stainless steel dispenser of some kind repeatedly because it's almost like that, why, 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 why did I make such a stupid choice? <laughs> so um, that's really all I wanted to say about his character in particular. Um, well, yeah, yeah I mean, I, you also get, you know, as far as subplots go, I'm kind of with you on Julian, uh, who is a gay Christian police officer. Okay. Just did not. I, I, I mean, I, I this is... He is the bubbles of that show for me. I'm like, dude, seriously, could not care less about anything that happened with that character. Yeah, and it, it's kind of a shame because for a while he's paired with um, Danny, who is at least somewhat interesting for a while. Yeah, she's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when, I when she and Julia are on the screen together, it's tolerable. When he's on his own, it's please go away. Your deep interpersonal, con your deep moral conflict about being gay and a Christian at the same time is not contributing anything to any at this point. And, and, you know, look, to people listening to the show, like, oh, rattled you homophobe, you know, how could you dis be dismissive of Julian and his, you know, internal struggle with homosexuality? I don't, I'm not saying they shouldn't have put it in the show. I, I it was just, done poorly. I don't, I, well, the thing of it was, is I, I, I don't want to speak on that because, like I said, it was one of those things where I would just tune out, you know. Julian yeah. comes on the screen and I'm, I'm doing something else, you know. Um, yeah, no, uh, I'm with you, and it's not that it's not an interesting topic to be examined. 
it didn't contribute, I felt at least, to the show in any real way, other than to perpetuate the, hey, wait, this is really just a giant high school. Yeah, and, oh, I, wait, I just, you might like boys, now we all have to mock you. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is for anybody who finds somebody struggling with their homosexuality and their religion and, you know, and where they fit between the two, God bless you. I'm sure that makes for very interesting television. I don't care, personally. Um, I also didn't care about Walt's cancer. So, you know, yeah. I was much more interested in his decision to make mess and, and all of that entailed and him getting involved with various Latino drug lords. I did not care about his cancer, and I still don't. So, I mean, again, don't know what that says about me, but, you know, you're, when you watch these shows, you know, like there are parts of, you know, with the, with the ensemble cast that was in um, Oz, there were certain uh, plot lines there were still that things were you didn't care about. Yeah, there were still things I was like, I just don't give a shit about this. Um, and, and we're all kind of wired differently when it comes to that. And so things like things that uh, are going to be interesting to Robert Winfrey are not going to be interesting to Mark Rattles and vice versa. That doesn't make them bad. We're well, just, everybody you know, else well, liked Bubbles, and you couldn't stand him because you yeah. deal with drug addicts on a regular basis. So why would I want to watch a television show about one every you know, people who don't have that well, mindset? They glorified well, Bubbles him. is awesome. That was, the, that was the problem. They glorified him. They, they made him. But my, my, here's the thing, because I, I know you and Samer sort of talked about this with degree on the Dexter podcast, which was very well done, by the way. Thank you. Let me say this: I've met heroin you. They're not that charismatic. Okay. No, they're not. You know, they're they're just not that interesting uh, of people, and so that was my big objection to Bubbles. It was they made him a very charismatic character. Of course, everyone loved Bubbles. He's awesome, but he's but for me, it's just not believable because I've met yeah. actual heroin users. They're <laughs> not that cool. You know, yeah, like you said, you know, just because we have you know people with different tastes, you know, just because you think something's different, or you enjoy something that I don't. Oh no, that doesn't make us mortal enemies because you're Jewish and I'm not, or because you, you know, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to go too far into that line of thought as far, you know, but look, Pat Mullen and I, let's just say it this way, we have very different philosophies about what we enjoy in pr the world of professional wrestling. That doesn't yep. mean I don't like him. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy talking with him about a variety of topics. I've even talked about. You know, we even discuss pro wrestling and our differences. You know, just because someone's different or they think differently doesn't make them evil or the enemy. Take a let. This goes out to everyone about ninety percent of everything. Thinking differently does not make you the enemy. It does not make you evil, and you should not be damned to the pit of hell unless you like Ben Stiller, in which case, God have mercy on your soul. There are certain people who write for 411 who I'm fighting the urge to make a joke about, considering what you just said. So why don't we just get to the end of this podcast? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know hear that, but you know, I like being moderate and kind of in the middle on things like that. But it, I also like being the contrarian at times. If I meet someone who I agree with too much, I like pointing out the opposite argument just to make them think about it. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, when I host the four one one ground and pound show, I get to be in the middle because you have Pat and Jeff, who both have very valid points of view, and they just oh, frequently they are opposed to each other. They have differing points of view. Neither one is necessarily wrong. They're just different, and I get to play the middle. If I'm on there just with Pat, I might play devil's advocate, so to speak, a little more, just to point out the opposite method of thinking. But And you get to deal with that when you host when all three of us are on, so... <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly drunk, so... I'm mostly drunk, so... It's 9 o'clock at night, my kids... My, it's 9 o'clock at night, my kids are bed, and I know one of you is going to start yelling at me, so I just drink a lot. I don't 
think I've yelled at you yet. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I'm, make, I'm making right. fun. I'm having fun. Yes, yes. Well, so now I'll have to yell at you at some point. You can be accurate about that. All right, just, Mark. Just, just do me a favor. Just do me a favor. When you do it, just say, pardon my friends, but you're an asshole. And then say whatever oh, it is you have God, to say. My family, I could say that in hearing of my whole family. Every one of us down to my 12-year-old brother would get the joke. <laughs> All right. And, and I, he I, just I, asked. He just said, "What? What would I get if I quote Cameron? If I quote Cameron on on a podcast and say, pardon my French, but you're an asshole.' They they were only very recently introduced to Ferris Bueller because it turned out they hadn't seen it. So it streams on Netflix. We fixed that problem right quick. There's, I wish I could remember the whole thing, but there's a Bloom County uh, comic strip where uh, one of the, where one of the characters calls the other one's a communist and a homosexual, which is where I got that from. That's the other one that I looked at. <laughs> All right, fair enough." Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I love having you on these. I love all my guests. I've never had a guest on this show that I've thought, man, that was a waste of time. So <laughs> hasn't happened yet. So, look, anybody out there, I've made this offer to the 411 staff. If you're interested, hit me up on Twitter or the staff forums, which we have. Shh, they're a secret. But you know, feel free to contact me, and if you have a topic you want to discuss, I'm happy to give everybody a you know, I'll put anybody on once, at least once. And if you suck, it may be your only time, or if I find the atmosphere difficult to deal with it, you'll, it'll only be once, but everybody will get at least a fair shot. Do promise that. So, Mark, what do you got this week? Okay, um, I, I, I plan to be on this weekend uh, 401 Ground and Pound radio show. Um, a, week from tom- a week from Sunday night, so th- this Sunday we're going to be reviewing – uh, tomorrow night's UFC 165. I do plan to host by hook or by crook, surrounded by wood, uh, by laminate wood that I've pulled off my floor, uh, and uh, 90% of my living room content sitting on top of me in the office. God damn it, I will be here. Breaking Bad will have to wait. I'm gonna have it on the DVR, and I'm gonna host this show. God damn it. Um, but the one that follows it, just a quick announcement. Um, the uh, the 29th. That show will be at its old start time of 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you West Coast and Mountain people, you're just going to have to get up with the with the roosters. Because um, at night, at our usually scheduled time, um, is Breaking Bad. And then after that, about 10 o'clock-ish, uh, will be the post-series finale discussion. So yeah, I had to swap time. So just be aware of that. Um, Robert Cooper and I... Uh, just did a, just completed another Metal Hammer of Doom podcast where we looked at uh, a bunch of members from Sabaton have left the group and formed their own called oh, Civil War. Awesome. Um, yeah, well, they, well, they, well, if you like Sabaton, you like you'll, you'll like Civil War and their album The Killer Angels. We reviewed it uh, Tuesday night, and Robert Cooper begged and pleaded, um, offered to do me favors. I won't tell you what kind. If I put off my um, my hiatus until after October 1st, so the very last Tuesday night podcast for the for uh, until November will be October 1st. It'll be a metal hammer of doom, and uh, I told him that if you're going to make me put off my hiatus, then I ha- then I was going to make you listen to the new Ministry album, which is fucking terrible. So, <laughs> um, and I'm a huge Ministry fan. I I go way back to you know with sympathy in the techno days. I love me some ministry. This is about the third or fourth farewell album they've done, and I'm starting to think that the man can't write a decent album so long as there isn't a bush in the White House. So, yeah, from beer to eternity, suck diddly yucked, 
and we're going to talk about how much it's ter- how how terrible it is because we've come to realize that the Metal Hammer of Doom podcast is only good if one of us hates an album. Um, so we're going to do well, from you guys to agreeing eternity. the whole time is no fun. So that's what we've come to realize. Uh, <laughs> so so two, so um, a week from this Tuesday will be the last Metal Hammer of Doom podcast until uh, November, and that'll be October first. Uh, this Tuesday coming up is the second half of the Rambo podcast. And then I'm handing the reins over to Sean Calmer and Robert Winfrey as they take you into Hellraiser, which uh, you need to remind Sean Winfrey that every episode needs to be preceded by the techno song that I sent him called Hellraiser. And if I need to repost it on Facebook, I will. In fact, I'll do that anyway. But I want every podcast to start with this techno song called Hellraiser. Okay? That's, that's, my, that's my only request. Um, so we're going to finish well, up Rambo. At least and then one we'll start with. I'll promise at you at least, least one. one, but I don't like techno music, so I might rebel. This is, uh, well, it's like techno-industrial. You'll like it. It'll be fine. Um, yeah. Just ask me. I know. So, yeah, um, clearly. So, uh, like I said, Rambo this Tuesday, and then we're done until November, which um, we were supposed to do in August, but I, but we've had to push it off, uh, is when we're hopefully going to start the Alien and Predator series, and then we'll be into uh, we'll, we'll be into Ooh, Die Hard. Can I be on for those? Um, possibly. We were supposed to bring on one of his friends who's supposed to be an expert on the subject. Hey, look, if you got somebody uh, better than me, fine and dandy. If you need a third, if you, you know, need someone to step in or for whatnot, I love all of those movies. As do I, especially the alien ones. Um, uh, besides that, uh, the, the newest member of the Radulich and Broadcasting family, uh, are the Casual Heroes. I guessed on their MMA and their wrestling podcast, so... Um, you'll find the latest, the, the last two wrestlecasts of Casual Heroes put out. You'll find them on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. So, um, if you go to iTunes, type in Rattledge, you'll find the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network. Type in, go to Stitcher, you'll find the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, and you'll find Long Road to Ruin, Metal Hammer of Doom, the Casual Heroes, and uh, of course, everyone loves the bad guy and the Four One Ground and Pound Radio Show. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, I keep forgetting to plug this. Every Thursday, for the most part, is uh, on FromTheRightRadio.com is The Right Hook. Essentially, it's an hour of me reading the Internet and, and, and John and I making jokes and occasionally a salient point. Hey, sounds awesome. <laughs> and there's chicken news, lots and lots of chicken news, because I am obsessed well, with we that We do topic. have to keep track of Clucky. That's right. Clucky must be – we must find Clucky at all times. Hey, if we know where right. he is, we can predict his actions. Um, my wife and I both thank you for having me on this show because she really doesn't need to listen to me talk about uh, awesome television shows that she'll never watch incessantly. So she ha- so she's happy that I have you providing me an outlet. Hey, anytime. I'm always happy to have you on. Thank you, sir. All right, so getting into my plugs. If you're listening to this live, Locked in the Guillotine, MMA News is up on 411mania.com in the MMA Zone. I look at all the big matches that were announced this last week. Quick preview, the UFC on Fox, December 14th. It cannot suck. I swear to high heaven, if that card is any... If it sucks. I'm not even going to say if it's less than awesome. If it sucks, I will be done with the sport. If the combination of Josh Thompson, Anthony Pettis, Carlos Condit, and Matt Brown can't produce at least one watchable fight, I will be done. Strong words. Hey, Pat can say if the Korean zombie beats Jose Aldo, he's done. If those four guys, if one fight out of those two at the top can't be watchable, I'm not even going to say awesome all-time classic. 
if I can't at least watch it and enjoy it, there's something wrong, not just with the product, but with me personally, and I might have to take a hiatus from MMA. But I also break down the UFC 165 card this Saturday, tomorrow if you're listening live, or record it immediately thereafter. I will have the coverage for 411 Mania, so if you can't watch for one reason or another and have to follow along via the internet, 411 Mania will have you covered. I will have round-by-round coverage as well as funny witticisms here and there about James Head needing a nickname, probably. And let's see, this Sunday I will be on the 411 Ground and Pound show. If my guest here, Mr. Radlich, has to drop out again, I'll be hosting. If not, I'll just be on there to make acute and astoundingly accurate observations. Which is my normal job. I'm on unless I'm dead. I'm not going to miss three shows in a row. I've hosted the last two. I don't mind hosting in the future. I'm just giving you a hard time, Mark. Um, Let's see. What else do I have? Uh, Next week, probably the same time, Friday at 7 seems to be working out pretty good. I will have the last show leading up to the finale of Breaking Bad. I'm debating how to do it. I do want to talk about 24 because I love the show. So I do want to talk about that, but there's a lot of other shows that I know I haven't quite that I know I haven't touched on. So there's a good chance that 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 I'll institute some kind of a call-in. So if you wish to discuss someone that I've left off, or if you just wish to curse at me, you won't get very far. But if you wish to, you can call up and you can do so. So there's, but next Friday will be the finale of the countdown to Breaking Bad, and then the next week we'll be uh, looking back at Breaking Bad because I love the show. And then into the month of October, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy will be doing focused, conveniently enough for Halloween, I'm going to look at horror movie bad guys, and I believe I have Sean Comer lined up for pretty much all of them at this point, so we'll see how that goes. I will be guest spotting on Long Road to Ruin this October, as Mark mentioned, talking about Hellraiser with Sean Comer should be a good time. And, of course, next Friday, Locked in the Guillotine will be back because it's there every week on Friday, folks. Great part of Friday, my weekly column. You should all check it out. And that's all my plugs. That's all your plugs, right, Mark? You forgot something? Indeed. All right. I'm good. So, for Mr. Radlich, who hosts a lot of podcasts and is generally awesome for letting me be on his network, I am Robert Winfrey. I am your host. And I will say again, Remember, folks, bad guys make good things sweeter. You can't have light without darkness. I'll see you next time. So say good night to the bad guys.